Thank you very much. Um, who, who here has ever heard the Book of Lamentations preached on in church before? Who has ever read the Book of Lamentations? Who has, who knew that there was a book called Lamentations in the Bible? You don't have to put your hand up. That's okay. See, most of us don't know this word lament and probably thought Lamentations was a book about lemons. <laughs> or something like that. And if you were thinking along those lines, you were actually not far off. The book of Lamentations is a book about when life gives you lemons. So it could have been called Lamentations. The Bible chooses to call it Lamentations. See, because this word lament, lament is about pain and loss and grief and sadness and depression and anxiety and all of the emotions rolled up into one and mourning. I think it's an important subject to discuss because I think that as a society, as people, we've lost the ability to lament. We've lost the ability to mourn pain and grief and confusion. And I don't understand what's going on. And I don't know how to process that. And so therefore, I just won't process it. All of that is, is lament. And I think as people, we've lost the ability to lament. There's a trend... Uh, part of my job is to understand culture. Um, I need to obviously understand the Bible, and then I need to understand culture because I want to understand how the Bible applies to culture. So I'm, I'm partly a, a student of culture. And there's a trend that I really don't understand, and it's called reaction videos. Uh, I don't know if you, if you don't know what a reaction video is, your life is better off without it. Don't worry about it. Here's essentially what it is. People film themselves watching something, and then they put, that film, they, they, they put that online for other people to watch their reactions to watching something. If it sounds like a waste of time, it's because it is. So I, I, there was a series, a particular series that I was looking for a while back. And it was a series that I'd watched long ago. And I wanted to find it again because it was funny. And uh, so I went looking for it and I thought, ah, oh, I found it. And there, there, it looked like the whole series was there. Turns out it was a series of reaction videos of people watching the series that I wanted to watch, filming themselves. Uh, no, this is not a one-minute video, right? This is a, a whole 20-minute episode of their faces laughing at each other, saying, oh, to that moment, reacting to the series that I want to watch. How has this become a thing? I think it's because people actually want to learn how we should react or respond in a certain situation. And so we watch people reacting to things in the hope that we can learn how to react correctly. I think it's a consequence of a disconnected world. People who live on their phones and don't actually know how to react to situations. And so we want to learn. So this isn't an old man standing out saying they don't make them like they used to. Might be true, but I'm not saying it. This is a pastor standing here saying there's a reason that God sandwiches this little book called Lamentations in the middle of the Bible. It's because he knew that we would have faced situations and I'm not sure how to respond to it. And so therefore, I just won't respond. Actually, I need a little bit of help knowing how I should respond. And so it gives us an example in the book of Lamentations or Lamentations. So Lamentations is essentially a reaction video of what happens when life gives us lemons. What happens when we get a raw deal, when tragedy strikes and when we feel as if God's promise hasn't been fulfilled. And we get this insight in how to react when that happens. We don't know exactly who wrote the book, but there's a few things that we do know about them. Obviously, they were an Israelite. And uh, here's what the Israelites 
had been through. God had spoken uh, a promise to Abraham, and then the promise to Abraham has been fulfilled partially. In, in these people's minds, it has been fulfilled. He's spoken a promise. They have uh, taken possession of the land that he had said to them that they would take possession of. Uh, he's given Jerusalem as a city to David uh, where they can set up the, the center of their, their civilization. And Solomon has built a temple there where they can practice the faith as God has given them. So this is how you should practice your faith. and This is how you should relate to me as your God. And all of that has taken place. And for 500 years, they've lived in this land and practiced their faith that God, everything has happened as God said it would. So from their perspective, God's promises come true. Yeah, they've wondered and they've messed up here and there and they've, they've meandered a bit. But on the whole, God's promise looks good. It's intact for 500 years. In about 587, the Babylonians uh, sack and take the city of Jerusalem, but only after a two-year siege of the city of Jerusalem. <clears throat> I want you to understand the trauma of a two-year siege on a city for those inside the city. So you cut off water and food supplies, no medicines, no herbs from the forest, no outside anything, no one in, no one out. You've got no way to get rid of your waste. You've got no way to get rid of your sewage. You've got no way to get rid of your dead. There's no way to isolate, no place to isolate your diseased. Your animals can't be fed, and so the ones that you can't eat die. When they die, you've got nowhere to put their bodies. No wood to burn for fires, for light, for cooking on, for warmth. Your clothes begin to wear out. For two years, your neighbors become enemies against you in a fight to survive. And while all of this is going on, there's enemies outside your gate trying to get in and kill you. To put this into context, after three days of rioting, we had people stockpiling toilet paper and panic buying flour to make their own bread. <laughs> three days it took us. In fact, it took most of us one day to reach that level of panic. My neighbor is my enemy. If I don't get into more toilet paper than my neighbor, I'm going to be in a problem. <laughs> that was one day. This is two years. And then after that two years, you go and you get to spend time as a prisoner of war in the country that's conquered you. So this book isn't written by a person who's had a bad day or a bad week, even a bad year. This is a person who's suffering from proper post-traumatic stress. He's clinically depressed, chronically confused. He's the, the book is dominated by pain and anger and confusion. God, what is going on? Have you ever been in that place? Sitting in your life, sitting in your bed at the end of the day, and uh, you, you think to yourself, I need to pray, and, and the only thing that you can pray to yourself is, God, what is going on? Have you been there, friends? Because I have. Here's a beautiful thing. One of the beautiful things that Lamentations teaches us, though. God is not angry with your emotion. He's not angry with your uh, emotional explosion or your confusion, your anger, or your accusations. The book of Lamentations is full of accusations at God. God seems to be comfort, comfortable enough with this person in this condition, emotional explosion, and his accusations. God seems comfortable enough to put it in the Bible. The turning point of the... Of the and, he, and he's put it in the Bible as a reaction video to help us. The turning point comes in the middle of the book in Lamentations chapter 3. In verse 22, it says this, God's loyal love couldn't have run out. His merciful love couldn't have dried up. There's no way. He's convincing himself. They, they're created new every morning. How great is your faithfulness? He said, I'm sticking with God. 
And he says to himself, I'm saying it over and over and over and over again. He's all I've got left. He's writing down to himself. Essentially, the book of Lamentations is a journal. I don't understand all of this, but I need to remind myself over and over and over again. I'm sticking to God because he's all I've got. And so the author swings between all of these negative emotions and this persistent hope. Essentially saying, you're still our God and we've all sinned and this is the consequence of our sin. And then um, you think to yourself, cool, the book has turned around and, and there's hope in the middle of the book. And then, but the book of Lamentations ends with these words, unless you've abandoned us, God. God? Like, like dot, dot, dot. God? That's it. And then it ends and the, and the Bible moves on. There's no, the, the author closes off his journal with unresolved questions. There's not a nice holiday movie ending and they lived happily ever after. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important to read the Bible as an entire story and not just pick out parts of it. That's when we start getting into error, where we take one scripture and we, we build an entire belief system around one scripture instead of looking how that scripture fits into the narrative of the rest of the Bible. So I'm very aware that everyone listening to this today will fit into one of two camps. Either saying, yeah, I'm painfully aware that I've got un processed grief and loss and mourning and confusion and anger that I need to process, or uh, I don't have any grief, I, I haven't lost anything that I need to, uh, that I need to uh, lament or mourn, and uh, my, my emotions make sense to me. I'm not confused by any of them. But I want to help you today to see that this isn't just for people who've suffered big public losses or grief, but that this is for everyone. See, so much of our loss is either private or unknown. And because it's unknown, not only to others, but sometimes to us, it never gets processed or progressed from. When I was a kid, one of my favorite adverts actually drives my point home better than I could drive it home. So I'm just going to play it for you for a second, if you'll, if you'll bear with me. say at this time that there are other fight available. It's playing again. We're not, we are not um, sponsored by anybody else. But he, he, he has a point to the video. So loss is, loss is a monkey on everybody's back. And if we never lament or grieve or process that loss properly, it stays there and it begins to hamper us. And for so many people, life is simply a, a series of ungrieved, unprocessed loss. I want all of us to come to the same realization that we have all suffered loss, all of us, because of evil. I'm not saying that everything bad that happens in the world is the devil, but I'm saying that everything bad, everything bad that happens in the world is a consequence of evil. Everything. 
See, once we understand that God's standard is perfection, and in perfection there is no evil, there is no death, there is no loss, then we, then we can begin to understand that we've all lost something because of evil. Because why? None of us live in perfection. So evil takes three forms. There's personal moral failure, which is my sin. There's injustice, which is somebody else's sin, your sin. And then calamity, which is the consequences of sin in a fallen world. And so what I'm saying is that all of us have suffered loss because of evil one of the, in one of these categories. It's one of these categories' fault that we have suffered loss. My sin might have caused loss because of my actions or decisions. You might have suffered loss because of somebody else's actions or decisions, their sin. Or you might simply have suffered loss as a consequence of living in a world that has fallen from perfection. The consequences of sin. For example, a friend of ours a few years ago stood up after lunch as a 32-year-old. He had lunch with his, with his young family, stood up from lunch, wiped his mouth, had a heart attack, and passed away. Nobody sinned. Nobody's direct sin caused his death. But, but it, was a, it was an indirect consequence of him living in a world that has fallen. It was an indirect consequence of sin. There's an earthquake in Turkey and Syria this week. 20,000 people dead. That calamity is not a direct result of somebody's sin, but it's an indirect result of a fallen, broken world that is caused by sin. For so many people, some of our deepest losses are either private or unrecognized, and so you never get a chance to grieve them and move through them, and so you live with this monkey on your back, trying to go through life as if everything's fine, but wondering what keeps weighing me down. I don't want to oversimplify it because I think there's a lot of factors at play and a lot of things to consider. But certainly some of it is unrecognized and ungrieved loss. So what do we do with lamentations? I think there's four quick things that we can apply from this book and then we're done. We need to define, limit, process, and progress our losses. And it's going to get real practical. So how do we define loss? Uh, how we define loss will help us to understand what it is that we need to process. I simply define loss as this, anything short of perfection. Anything short of perfection that you are living in, anything short of perfection that you are experiencing is a loss. Some losses are way bigger and way more obvious than others, and some are more complex to deal with. My sin, the sin of others, and the consequences of sin in a sinful world, cause me to live in less than God's best, and that's a loss. So I'm not saying that we need to go around in a state of mourning because life is imperfect, but rather we need to define loss correctly so that we can process it, so that we can progress from it. We want to get the monkey off our backs and walk without a limp. So how do I limit, how do I limit loss? If I've defined it as less than perfection, how do I limit that? How do I stop losing more and more every day? The first thing I need to do is to assess the root cause of my grief or loss. Is it my sin? Is it uh, my personal moral failure? Is it an injustice, somebody else's sin? Or is it simply the consequences of a fallen world? Because if the cause of my loss and grief is my sin, I can deal with it. I need to deal with it. Not I can deal with it. I have to deal with it. If, you, if you've come to that realization, if you're sitting out today suffering loss and perhaps ongoing loss as a consequence of your personal moral failure, your sin, and you, are, you, you don't know how to move forward, don't, don't sit there not knowing. Come and speak to someone. 
speak to a life group leader. And if you're not in a life group, come and speak to one of the pastors afterwards. We want to put you, we want to help you and put you in contact with somebody else that can help you better than we perhaps could. If the, if the, the cause of your loss or, or, or uh, grief or mourning is somebody else's sin, the Bible gives us a pattern for that. It says, go and speak to the person who has sinned against you. If you, if you are unable to, to, to speak to them or speaking to them doesn't work, again, come and speak to your life group leader, speak to a pastor, and we might put you in contact with somebody who's far cleverer and, more, and better equipped than us to deal with that. But, but if, if direct sin is the cause of your loss, the only way to limit it is to deal with the sin. If the, if the cause of your loss and your grief is calamity, it's just the consequences of a fallen world, the, the only thing that you can do is learn to embrace your limitations. We do live in a fallen, broken world. That's how it is. Some of us, all of us, will die one day. Not some of us. All of us will die on this earth one day. We, we all accept that. It's a consequence of a fallen, broken, sinful world. Death is a consequence of that. Ecclesiastes, Rich preached three weeks ago out of Ecclesiastes, and uh, 7 verse 14 of Ecclesiastes says this, When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider this. God made it the one as well as the other. In other words, we have to embrace the limitation of living in a world that is subject to the law of sin and death. Sometimes we suffer loss and there's nothing that we can do about it. Jesus tells the parable. Jesus always speaks in parables and metaphors and stories so that his disciples can understand it and so that we can read it years later. And he tells the parable of a man who went to sow wheat, wheat seed in a field. And in the night, an enemy comes and sows weeds in with the wheat. And then in Matthew 13, verse 26, it says this, When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, why didn't you sow, uh, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? An enemy, is, an enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he said, Because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. Let the weeds and the wheat grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, First collect the weeds and tie them in a bundle so they can be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Friends, some of the effects of a sinful world cannot be addressed in this world. We have to put our hope in a perfect future, in a perfect world to come, where the, where the, where the consequences, the ultimate consequence of sin, death, will be dealt with. It doesn't get addressed in this earth. It only gets addressed in a perfect future. And because some of our losses are communal, when I say a communal loss, it means we've all lost the same thing. Because some of our losses are communal, we've all lost the same thing. Some of our healing, some of our limiting of loss is also communal. It is also together. For example, what we've all lost is a relationship with our Creator. And because we all lost the same thing, part of restoring that is restoring it together, which is why it's so important for you to be part of a community of faith, a family, to limit your loss. Some of you might be sitting there thinking, uh, the family of faith is what's causing some of my loss, because it does. Investing in a relationship costs you. Anybody that's ever been in a relationship knows that. Investing in a relationship is costly. Investing in a family of faith, a church, is costly, but it's the only way to suffer, to, to limit the loss relationally that we've all suffered. 
also want to say here that if somebody is suffering loss as a direct result of their own sin, make sure that as we're limiting each other's loss, that you don't limit their loss in such a way that it allows them to keep on sinning. So we, we, we want to walk the line of where can I limit your loss? But if the cause of your loss and your grief and your mourning is your own personal sin, I don't want to limit it where, so that you keep sinning. If you are a Christian and, and you read your Bible, you would know the story of the you might know the story of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son only ever comes to his senses and says, I need to go back to my father when he's broke in a pigsty by himself. If somebody had intervened and limited his loss before that, he might not have gone back to his father. So we want to limit each other's losses, but if the, if the cause of, of someone's loss in a community is their own sin, we can't limit them out of that. Limit it, but don't allow them to keep sinning. So let's talk quickly about the process of grief and loss and the process of lament, and then we're done. So you might have heard it said that time heals all wounds, and with, with great respect to whomever you heard that from, it's a bunch of rubbish. Time doesn't heal wounds. Time doesn't heal anything. The only thing that brings healing is what you intentionally do, what you give yourself to. Without doing any of the processing, all time does is it allows you to live with a monkey on your back for so long that it becomes part of your life, and you think it's normal. It's normal to live with this weight. It's normal to walk with this limp. That's all time does until you give yourself to a process of healing. That's the only thing that gets the monkey off your back. That's the only thing that allows you to walk without a limp. A few years ago, I was involved in property development, and we were developing a, an estate in the Berg, and the original thought was to make it an equestrian estate for horse people. But one of our directors was a mountain biker, and so he wanted to make a mountain bike estate. All the mountain bikers want to do is, all they want to do is mountain bike. Mountain biking estate. I said, that's, that's fun. Let's go, and look at the, let's go and look at some of the tracks. So we, there was obviously a few uh, trails and uh, paths going through the site already. And so myself and him walked uh, these trails, walked the paths. And while we were walking, I said to him, like, these paths are pretty good. Uh, why don't we just chuck the guys on their bikes on the paths? We're done. Like, how much work is there still here to do? No, 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 he says to me. There's a lot of work that needs to be done on these paths to make them suitable for mountain bikers. Now, I, I'm, I'm not a mountain biker, clearly, and I'm not very, I've never been mountain biking, except when I was a kid, riding BMXs down a hill. Now, when I was a kid riding BMXs down a hill, we didn't take out grass roots and stones and rocks, right? We just rode over them, because our bikes were made of lead and concrete. That's what it felt like if you're riding them back up the hill, lead and concrete, but this guy said, no, we've got to get people in here with spades by hand. They've got to take out all of this grass, all of these grass roots, uh, the stones, the small little rocks, the, the, the medium-sized rocks. We've got to take it all out. I thought to myself, there's 10 kilometers of tracks here. Somebody's got to do the hard work by hand of 10 kilometers of handwork on this track just so that somebody can ride on it. It's the only way. See, if we don't remove all of that stuff, and we put people on a mountain bike on it, they've got two options, go around it or over it. If you go around it, you're riding double the distance, you're exhausting yourself. If you go over it, you're breaking your axle, or whatever the mountain bike equivalent of an axle is. You're breaking it. So if you never, ever remove those things, that path is suitable for walking, but as soon as I want to ride it, if I don't remove everything that's on it, I'm either I'm left with exhaustion or broken. That's all I'm left with, without removing all the stones. 
All of us want to progress from grief and loss. And the only way to progress is through a process. It's not time that progresses us. Time doesn't heal us. It's a process. The only way to progress is through a process. We set up front that Lamentations is essentially a reaction video that helps us know. But the book of Lamentations is actually a process. What the book teaches us is that one of the most valuable things that you can do in this process is to write it down. Write down what, you might ask? Everything. Write down everything. Write down how you're feeling, your deepest, darkest thoughts and fears. Write down where you think it's been wrong or unfair, where you think God has got it wrong, where you think you've been treated unfairly, where God has treated you unfairly. We said one of the, one of the lessons from this book is that God isn't afraid of our honest, raw emotions. And he's not afraid of our accusations. He's big enough to not worry about my accusations of him. He's big enough not to worry about my opinion of him on a bad day. God can take it. And he can take your opinion of him on a bad day. Write them all down. Write down an A to Z of your loss, your pain and your grief. Don't avoid them and hope that over time that they'll go away because they won't. One of the beautiful things about this book is that the writer keeps coming back to the same issues again, again, and again. And then he actually ends up in a place that doesn't give us a nice, neat answer. I think God gives us permission to ask him the same question and to keep processing the same pain and loss and confusion with him again and again and again. He wants us to know that as persistent as your limp is, hope is equally persistent. So my plan for those that are interested when I die is to be cremated. But I think that there's something beautiful about a grave and a gravestone because a grave reminds me of somebody of something that I've lost, of someone that I've lost. And there's a place where that loss is buried. And there's a gravestone on it is written the process. Your grief, your loss needs a place to be buried and it needs a process for its gravestone. So remember that's a place where you can remember what you were feeling at the time. And you can see the faithfulness of God into where you are today. And sometimes we just need to keep reminding ourselves that our grief is buried there. We can go back and visit it to see the place where our grief is, bu- where our grief is buried. It's not buried and forgotten about. It's buried in a healthy way. And sometimes we need to, and depending on the, who the person is, sometimes we need to just visit it to make sure that they're still buried there. Sometimes you need to visit that process every now and again to, remind, to make sure that your grief is still buried there that it hasn't resurrected itself again. As humans, we want a map. Tell me where I go, exactly how to get there, what to expect along the way, because I want to prepare myself. God doesn't give maps to healing. He doesn't give maps to health. But what he does do is he gives us a direction. Not a map, but a direction. He says, if you keep going in this direction, and if you keep walking with me and a community of faith, then you will get to the destination of healing. You'll get the monkey off your back and you'll be able to walk without a limp. Understand that you're going to have to keep swinging between process and progress and keep, to keep moving in the right direction. It's, it's not as if you're going to be able to say, tomorrow I will be through my process and then I can progress from that. It, it, won't, be, it won't be a day, but I can promise you that if you keep going through the process, you keep going in the right direction, it might not be tomorrow, but it will be a day 
when you will look back and you'll be able to visit the grave where your grief is buried and you'll be able to look, read the gravestone that you processed it and you'll be able to remember it and the pain will no longer be there. I can tell you that because I've done it. I want to help you with a few things today. Firstly, to recognize that all of us have suffered loss as a result of evil. For many of us, life is simply a series of ungrieved losses. And if we never grieve them properly, we end up living with a monkey on our backs, walking with a limp. And we do it for so long that it seems normal to us. Once we recognize that loss is defined as anything short of perfection, which is God's creation, and then we can recognize what we have lost. We can limit our own loss by assessing the root cause of it, my sin, somebody else's sin, or the consequences of sin in a fallen world. But I can also recognize my ability to limit loss in other people. One of the things I'm asking from you today is, will will you commit to be a loss limiter in other people's lives? As South Africans, we are confronted by loss every day. Can you commit today for this week only, and then let's take it from there. But can you commit to being a loss limiter for somebody else today? The only way to progress is through a process. Write everything down so that you can order it. You can order your emotions and you can begin to process them. And the only way to do that is to get them all out. Write them all down. Bring them by name before God. And once you've done that, keep going in the direction that God has set. Not a map, but a direction and a trust. If I keep progressing, see, if I, if I keep progress, I close the book of Lamentations with, with questions unanswered, and if I keep progressing in a direction for past Lamentations, I eventually end up at the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2 is when Jesus is born. And if I keep progressing through the process of lament and grief and mourning and loss and confusion, and, but if I keep moving in that direction, you will get to Matthew. You will arrive at a Savior into your situation. But if you've done all of that and you still need help, Speak to your life group leader. If you're not in a life group, come and speak to a pastor. We want to help you. We want you to be healthy and whole. Can you stand with me, please?